Hello, this is Max Krieger, I'm doing something a little bit different than my podcast with Doyle on the great works of the Western tradition. This podcast is going to be oriented towards individuals I know and their specialties. And we'll get more into that in the future and sort of see where it goes. But today I am joined by a great high school friend, Tony Tucci. Hello. And Tony is a nurse uh, on a spinal unit, right? That is correct. And that's been for the last six months or so? Oh, yeah. Feels like longer. So let's go back to the beginning. Um, I know you've had a wide variety of interests, but why nursing? What drew you to this career? All right. That's a great question. And I'm glad you asked that. Um, going way, way back, it starts when I was about five, I had two neighbors that were firefighters and one was a paramedic and I was fascinated by that. One of them fell off a ladder, the paramedic came over, fixed them up. And I think that was my first exposure to, uh, like seeing some medicine in action. A year later, I fell, cracked my head open and the paramedic came over and helped calm me down and I went and got stitches. No big deal. But I think seeing that really got me interested in the medical field. Mm. So I always wanted to be a firefighter. And as I was getting older and started looking into a career, it became obvious that uh, becoming a firefighter is quite a challenge and there aren't many job opportunities. So I looked for something else that didn't require a medical degree mm. and nursing it was. So it sort of combined. And was that the desire to help people like the firefighter so, slash paramedic? I think uh, more shallowly. Mm-hmm. It was a interest in the medicine itself, the mm-hmm. fact that you could use this supply and material to make someone not hurt or cure them or something like that. Yeah. Um, I think now, I think something, one reason that really made me want to be a nurse is the compassion aspect of it. Um, Nursing is one career field where it doesn't matter who the other person is. It doesn't matter. This is kind of cheesy, but if they're, you know, black, female, gay, straight, white, don't speak English. Like, it doesn't matter. Like you're caring for them solely because they're a person and they need to be cared for, yeah. which is really powerful. So I think right now there's two things that. Mm, are required to be not just a nurse, but a good nurse. And that is one, an interest in the field, and two, a uh, driving force in helping others. Perfect. Yeah. Um, so you went to Creighton Nursing School. That's right. And raised a lot of hell. I'm pretty sure that you told everyone you were Canadian for the uh, first I year. I am Canadian, Max. <laughs> <laughs> So um, I actually don't know a lot about nursing and education other than the anatomy and physiology classes you had to take. Mm -hmm. What is nursing education like structurally? Like what is the progression that you go through to become a nurse? Okay, that is a good question. It depends um, on what type of program you do. So for me, I did a four-year bachelor's degree in nursing. So basically my first two years were – prerequisite type classes. I was filling out the normal core classes like English and chemistry with very few nursing classes, but the ones that I did take were anatomy, physiology, pathophysiology, and then um, like health assessment. And so is that in common with other fields, those basic ones? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Kind of going off of that, 
what I found so far in my nursing career is that most people did not go into college knowing they wanted to be a nurse. Uh, this is often a second degree or second career choice for people. Interesting. Very few are four year straight out of high school going into nursing school. So um, I think a lot of people have an interest in science, but not quite certain on what they want to do. So there's a lot of biology majors, chemistry majors, mm-hmm. sports medicine, uh, physical therapy, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, occupational therapy. Yeah, I mean, I shouldn't, <laughs> I shouldn't get physical and occupational therapy in there because those are professional careers, but there's um, like those type of degrees that you can get before that will lead to physical Got occupational it. therapy. So, but um, before we go on to the more advanced stuff than mm-hmm. the four-year, um, mm-hmm. I wondered what you thought of the gender gap in your field. Oh, God. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I know from the Xavier class that I graduated with, that class of occupational therapists, it is 40 to 2, girl to guy. Uh-huh. Um, and I was wondering what your experience with that was. Uh, so it was quite interesting at first coming from – Regis Jesuit High School, all guy classes into uh, Creighton University's nursing classes. I think we had like 120 people to start, and I think eight or nine of them were guys. So, um, what did you end up with? I think about 80 graduated, and there were like six guys. Yeah, it was pretty good. Six of 80. It's about the same yeah, yeah. ratio as occupational therapy right. at Xavier. Yeah, I mean, it was fun. You, uh, I felt like Two of my best friends at Creighton were in nursing with me, mm-hmm. which was pretty meaningful. Um, you know, the girls accept you as one. Of, I got called yeah. "Hey Girl" one time. Hey. That was that was a low point, but it was um, you know it was fine. Well, you yeah. get used to it pretty quick. I had the exact opposite discipline going into philosophy. Oh, dude! I think there was about twenty philosophy majors or minors. And I think of, of those, there was two girls. <laughs> but, Did everyone just flirt with them? No, no. These are not girls to flirt with um, <laughs> because they will use the Socratic method and ruin your life. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> but I find, I don't know, it's around certain political issues um, and it's around sort of the social justice movement and what it thinks of as equality in terms of career interests. But I've been fascinated by people who go into fields where they're not um, by identity, quote unquote, (laughs) uh, not as common in those fields. And if anything in particular comes out of that, or if it's just to you, it was just, it was all still nursing. It was all still nursing. Honestly, the most I hear about it isn't from other nurses or even how I feel. It's from like the older patients like, I'll walk into my room and be like, are you my doctor? I'm like, no, I'm a nurse. <laughs> Do I look like your doctor? <laughs> um, so after you finished the the sort of prereqs for nursing, what happened? And um, once, or if you could explain that, what did you mm-hmm. think was the methodology or goal of nursing education? Sure. So um, after the prereqs, it becomes much more nursing-focused. Every class is a nursing class. Um, pharmacology, you do clinicals. Um, you have, like, it's, it was called, from my school, it's different every nursing school, but my class was called care management. 
And it's basically how to be a nurse, how to apply the pharmacology and pathophysiology and health assessment and how to manage the patient with a certain condition. So, so it was sort of like this, this really rigorous scientific side about the molecules and their doses and the care. And then there was the human professional side. Uh, I wouldn't say quite as rig- rigorous as you might think, uh, but more um, what, like if a patient has COPD, for example, and you're caring for a patient with an exacerbation of that, the right way to go about it, what meds might be involved, what meds you wouldn't want to use, um, the patho behind it, certain specific examples to COPD that you would use in your management of the patient that you wouldn't use for other respiratory patients. Okay. And then there is definitely, and especially at Creighton, the the whole Jesuit aspect of it, they did apply that um, weekly journal reflections on Ignatian values and how it applies to our care. Oh, that's cool. It was cool. Yeah, it was complete opposite of Xavier. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at least for the philosophy program. But that's interesting. There's a certain degree to which uh, Jesuit education is Jesuit or whether the religion sort of fallen into the secular background of a discipline. Sure. Um, did So moving to sort of the day-to-day tasks of being a nurse, Yeah. Uh, what does your usual nursing day look like? Uh-huh. I know it's at night, so I know it's hell. To some <laughs> degree. You have to pull an all-nighter three times a week in order to be a nurse. God, well, my sleep schedule is non-existent. <laughs> <laughs> Your circadian rhythms are non-rhythms. Yeah, I don't even. It just, yeah, it's like me playing music. It just doesn't make sense. Uh-huh. Um, so my typical night, I'll usually have five patients. Um, my unit has twenty beds. So of those twenty beds, eight to twelve of them are usually spine patients. They just had some sort of spine surgery. The others are various of other minorish surgeries or. Uh, medical conditions that they're in for and they didn't have room on other units Mm -hmm. um so of those five patients it's usually night shift sucks because everyone's trying to go to bed at the same time but then no one ends up sleeping (laughs) so you spend the first five hours probably seven till midnight uh trying to get your meds done trying to help all these spine patients who can't walk because they just had a huge surgery on their back go to the bathroom um you have to get your assessments done, your charting done, and then deal with anything that may arise. So, um, for example, a very common one is they get their Foley catheter taken out of, and then they have to pee within a certain parameter, and sometimes they don't pee, so you have to go in and give them a straight catheter. So that can be time-consuming. It messes with your whole system and organization for the night. But... um, Generally, the first five hours are pretty night or pretty task heavy, and then the rest of the night is planning for the next day or what you're going to do next with them mm-hmm. and managing their pain and things okay. like that. So you're involved in patient care day to day, like oh, yeah. planning out their care. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we'll get on to the because there's a perception that nurses are sort of completely beholden to doctors. At least I've, <laughs> I've heard that perception before. Yeah. Though ironically. Um, One of the reasons I wanted to have you on is because I know almost nothing about nursing. And then at the same time, my mom, it was a nurse. (laughs) (laughs) So there's, 
And then, you know, we also have the same thing probably as the CSI effect, which is people think that forensic science is very useful totally. because of uh, CSI and crime shows. Right. So people probably think nursing is a very specific way because of House and Grey's Anatomy and right. The Good Doctor and a variety of other shows. We have a perception and then there's a reality that's not as dramatic. The only Grey's Anatomy episode where they like really thought about nursing was when the nurses went on strike and then like the doctors were like screwed over which i think is entirely the case (laughs) um doctors are huge sometimes there can be a little conflict between nursing and the doctors um i think that is getting better i haven't been around long enough to say but i've heard horror stories of how doctors treat nurses and there are definitely some doctors that treat nurses poorly um, but for the most part, um, the nurses really, really guide the doctor's thinking sometimes. Obviously, when a pers- person just gets admitted to the hospital, the doctor will assess them and then they'll get all the orders set up. But they really, really rely on the nurses and their assessments to communicate with the doctors of what to, the patients might need, um, if they need a certain medication if they need more pain meds, if certain symptoms are arising that they need managed. And the nurses usually put in recommendations for that. So um, like a very simple one would be like, hey, my patient is in pain. The Tylenol isn't treating it. Can we get like five milligrams of oxycodone? Yeah. Right. So they'll, they'll tell the doctors what they want and what they think. And most of the time, the doctors agree. Okay. So it's like a partnership and that's it. It's too. definitely a partnership. The best way to go about it and the best way for patients to recover and optimize their health outcomes is for it to be a partnership. Do you think that, um, so that there's, we talk about in the sciences, there's the hard sciences, mm-hmm. which are like biology, chemistry, physics, which is what pre-med students study. Yeah. And then there's the human sciences, mm-hmm. uh, which are about psychology you could maybe say occupational therapy, things that are oriented towards uh, what does the person want out of this? Mm-hmm. And then you have to sort of use empirical methods that aren't as rigorous. When you treat a patient in nursing, is it, I mean, obviously the pain is qualitative because mm-hmm. you're getting feedback from a patient, but is the way that you develop treatment plans based on just numbers like heart rate monitors or um, the various data you get while in the room, or is there a qualitative aspect where you have to use what you're getting from the human to help cure the patient? Totally. Um, it's definitely both. Um, Are, do you think they're equal or it's more quantitative? Um, that's a really good question. I'll go. So for the, in the intensive care unit, it's definitely quantitative. You're going off lab values and heart rate and dysrhythmias and, just clinical s- symptoms mm-hmm. um, and signs. Yeah. Signs, and I should differentiate. Signs are objective measurements. Symptoms are subjective. So, so would a rash be a... That'd be a sign. That would be a sign, okay. But the rash is painful is a symptom. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, on my unit, I'd say it's it's pretty equal. Pretty, okay. Um, most people are fairly medically stable. Mm-hmm. Their blood pressures are typically generally okay. And if they are bad, they're not super, super life-threatening bad. So it a lot of it is 
how well they move. Ah, no, now I'm second guessing myself because a lot of with the spine patients specifically is how well they're doing if they have numbness or tingling, um, if their motor skills are fine, if um, they're having any like headaches or neck pain and things like that is, and that's really um, qualitative. Yeah, qualitative. Yeah. So, so nursing is a discipline that really brings the science to like. It really brings the hard science to its treatment, but then there's this other half that's completely human involved in it. Oh, or you would maybe this might be a bad philosophical distinction, but more <laughs> more subjective parts of medical treatment. Yeah, and I'd say that's fair just in the way you generally care for your patients. Um, and I'll give an example here: is every now and then you get a patient that medically is completely fine. They had back surgery and they're in a lot of pain and that is their biggest barrier to going home is controlling their pain. Um, So while scientifically you're not doing a huge amount for them, you're not treating dysrhythmias or respiratory illnesses or kidney disease, you're trying to get their pain under control so they can walk normally. Yeah. Um, And I think because of that, it takes – it can be kind of unmotivating Mm -hmm. because you want to feel like you're saving their life when in reality you're, you have to look at it in a different mindset. You're not saving in their their life. You're um, help alleviating their suffering or something like that. And I think that's very um, whole caricature personalis, whole, Mm -hmm. what's the word I'm looking for? Care of the whole person. Care of the whole person way of going about it. I wanted to take one step back before we stepped forward again because you just brought up about six issues I wanted to talk to you about. (laughs) (laughs) But um, just to go back to education so we can pop it off the list, uh, what do you think – how well do you think nursing education prepared you for the the day-to-day realities of nursing? And um, do you have any reflection on how we educate healthcare professionals into nursing and EMTs, because I know you've been an EMT before, mm-hmm. compared to um, you know, the reality of actually doing the job. Cool. And if there's a big- That is a wonderful question. Um, nursing school is very heavy on the science itself, of learning the pharmacology and pathophysiology and stuff. Uh, I've learned so much more in the past past two weeks probably (laughs) but yeah i've learned more since i've been working than i did um in nursing school and that's just because of in nursing school while you learn all the different disease processes and all that you don't actually learn how to be a nurse Uh even with clinicals because clinicals you're always sheltered by the nurse you're training with that day so i'd say nursing school is very skills focused you work on inserting IVs and putting in catheters and giving shots and working with IV pumps. Whereas being an actual nurse, you don't have the time to just focus on one skill. You're bringing everything you learn together, the medicine, the science, the compassion, the skills all into one. And in a timely manner too. In a timely manner, It's not like you can uh, say like this patient's like homework, I'm going to finish it by Thursday. Right. You get back to them on their treatment. Procrastinate a little bit. (laughs) So, I mean, I don't know if you've thought about this, and we could move to uh, a different question related to it, but do you mm-hmm. think that there should be a certain amount of reform in healthcare education because of that gap, or do you think that 
the weed out process of learning the hard science and the sort of rote memorization is necessary to. So I, so I've, I've thought of that a little bit. Um, and I think that's the right question. I don't think the answer is one of those two options. Mm-hmm. I think you, I don't think there should be too much change to it, or maybe I just don't know what I would change. I think in a perfect world, you would have the student nurse taking more of a role in the patient care and making more decisions. But I also think that is extremely risky Mm. to the patient itself. So, um, I don't know. I feel like I, nursing school got me everything I needed to know. And then we did a six-week preceptorship at the end of nursing school, which was beneficial to kind of helping you put it all together. Yeah, as well as clinicals across disciplines, right? Mental health rotation, nursing rotation. Yeah, totally. Um, And all that, sorry. No, you're good. Thank you. (laughs) All that definitely um, prepared me, but I don't think there's a perfect way to go about it. God, okay. I think it's pretty effective. I I find that as just like a naturally fascinating part of education (laughs) in itself. There's there's sort of no preparation for reality other than reality. Um, but <laughs> totally. And so, I, some, and I know we'll get to here with JP because uh, my friend JP is coming on to talk about education. He's a bitch. Yeah, he's the worst <laughs> kind of person. <laughs> he's a completely brilliant teacher, though. I, I would hope. <laughs> but there's this fascinating sense in which we're sort of too young when we start college to <laughs> do professional things. So we draw it out through all of these classes to get to a more matured brain or something like along those lines. Probably. And the question is education about efficiency, application, understanding, etc. And the healthcare field gets into this more and more because the consequences are life and death. You know, yeah. so whatever empirical data we could bring on to educating nurses would be useful. Um but let's go into the um, sort of palliative care elements of it oh, that you were just cool. talking about. Yeah. So part of being a nurse's job is alleviating pain, mm-hmm. as you were saying. Mm-hmm. What, what's the worst case of pain you've ever seen? And how, how far can pain go? In sense, like, yeah, it, just because we have this, I don't know, I've broken several bones, I've injured myself, right. but I... I have no idea of just how bad my experience of my body might be. Totally. So pain is fascinating because it is entirely subjective. Um, They've tried with several different methods to quantify it objectively, but you can't. You'll have have patients that are like the the very basic system of rating someone's pain. You ask them how bad is your pain on a scale of zero to ten. You'll have patients who are screaming and writhing and squirming in bed because they can't get comfortable, and they'll say they're at an eight. And you'll have patients that were just asleep. You woke them up to take your vital signs. They say they hurt. You ask them how their pain is. They say 10. Uh-huh. Like, okay. So, you know, there, it's, um, it's – so my point is it's entirely subjective. I don't think there's a certain disease process or anything that – has worse pain than others. Um, I, I really truly believe that there's probably a lot of environmental factors growing up that leads patients pain tolerance. Um, you'll see a lot of like 
people who've, who've had it good for a while and uh, having a little bit of discomfort is 10 out of 10 pain and they can't sleep for a night, you know, and yeah. which, which obviously you treat it the same. You treat it as if it is 10 out of 10 pain, but mm-hmm. after seeing multiple patients together and how they react to different pain, you can't help but wonder if, you know, facing some adversity or something in life leads to like more pain tolerance or not. Yeah. yeah. I've also found in my, subjective experience which isn't going off of much but (laughs) if i'm sort of like already awake blah 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 and i stub my toe yeah i'm like much more able to focus on that pain and deal with it because i'm awake i'm moving blah blah blah. yeah but if i were tired or distraught or emotionally down that pain would be so much worse because there's almost as if i don't have the mental will to like sort of get over my pain in terms of my experience of it but, like, do you think that pain management is too subjective in that sense? Or do you think it's, um, there's something, there's a there there that you can go off of? Um, that's a good question. That's a tough question to answer. Um, I, I wouldn't say it's too subjective because I really do think it's, it truly depends what the patient says. And you can definitely tell when a patient is milking it a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, there are other comorbid factors to assess for like facial grimacing and do they just look uncomfortable? Are they moving around in bed? Are they getting agitated Mm -hmm. or are they just wanting pain meds? Yeah. Um, I had another point I was going to say, but it just escaped my mind. We can. Oh, we, 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 there's a pretty new pain scale we've been using. I'm not sure what it's called. It's not even in the charting system when we assess pain and have to chart it, but it has the numerical system. And then under each number is like a little sentence that kind of describes how they feel. So like 10 out of 10 pain under it, it says something like, um, pain is the only thing you can think about. You can't get your mind off of it. Whereas like a six would be like pain is taking up a lot of your thinking. Yeah. And it's, but it's not the only thing you're thinking about. You can get yeah. distracted by it. And five is like pain is making it hard to do normal activities. That's a, that's a very cognitive scale though. It is. Interestingly, it's sort of how you're thinking about pain or how you're experiencing it. Do you, have you seen Saving Private Ryan? <laughs> the opening scene. Oh, just the opening scene? Yeah. I'm oh, the movie. there's this great scene in that movie where they have to treat a guy who's popped one of the major veins <laughs> running up his leg. The, yeah, the femoral uh, the, artery. The femoral probably. artery, yeah. yeah. And he has to reach up and grab it. Nice. But he loses his grip on it, and the guy's screaming, and eventually he passes out from shock. Yeah. Now, to me, that's a 10 out of 10 pain. Yeah. Someone's trying to retrieve my femoral artery out of my <laughs> blown open leg wound, and I'm about to pass out from pain. Right. And I think that's where I start to get skeptical about these pain scales is that the worst imaginable physical types of pain are so high and the very like paper cuts or toe stubs are so low compared to how (laughs) high that is Right. that we are sort of medicating personalities in terms of their pain rather than like the actual pain. And, you know, I've had this experience with, uh, sensitive people or people like you who get hangry, where I have such a high tolerance for discomfort 
yeah. that I can go 12 hours without eating and not really notice sure. other than I start to get a little irritable and then I go, I have to eat because I have to be in a good mood because I have to do something else with right. people or something like that. Right. So that's interesting. Have you had emotional um, turmoil from watching a patient in pain? Have you felt like the sense of I'm responsible for this pain or like I need to alleviate this? I wouldn't say I've ever had the I'm responsible for this pain, Mm -hmm. but I've definitely felt the need to be the guy, be the nurse that takes away their pain, that helps Mm -hmm. them from their suffering. Um, And usually, and that's not that uncommon to feel that way, I think, for any nurse. I'd say it depends on the patient, though. Um, One huge thing for me, at least in nursing, is is the patient willing to work with you, Mm -hmm. right? Because I'm not... I. There's only so much I as a nurse can do. I can show you I'm working hard. I can show you I'm putting in a lot of effort to get your pain. I can show I'm giving you your pain meds regularly when you can get them. I'm calling the doctor if we need more pain meds. I'm using other non-pharmacological interventions such as like ice and heat and repositioning and things like that to help with your pain. Mm -hmm. Like I can go that far, but I can't take away your pain for you. But if you're trying to do something and not just sitting there feeling this is going to sound bad. Sorry, podcasters. But if you're sitting there feeling sorry for yourself, it's really hard to get motivated to help you. Like I want to see that, like you feel that you're suffering, but you don't want to suffer anymore. And then I will feel the drive to help you not suffer. Yeah. That's a, that's a really interesting reality for um, healthcare providers. And I think it's, it sort of plays into this, Uh, the other person's understanding of what poor health in a hospital is Mm -hmm. and their desire to get out of it or not to get out of it. Do you, have you found any sort of patterns in there? Like the amount of support that someone has at a hospital, they do better with their pain or um, do certain people have certain outlooks that you've noticed that help with their pain or. uh, Yeah, actually. Yeah. I had a patient a couple weeks ago who, um, had this pretty bad, pretty big back surgery and they were in a lot of pain and I, but they were willing to get better. And because of that, because of cider, please, because of that, (laughs) because of that, um, I was willing to try to do my best and put in a lot of effort to help them. Mm -hmm. But then they told me something too, that meant a lot to me. And it was when like, day two or three post-op they were walking up and down the hallway and they're like man there are a lot of sick people on this floor right now like i'm pretty lucky yeah and like then they went on and continued continued and mentioned like i know this pain is only temporary there's some people that are going to be in this pain for the rest of their life yeah and that was so inspiring and like that person did great they got out like and i think recognizing that a lot of times your suffering is only in that moment Mm-hmm. or for the next few moments but there's light at the end most people on my unit go get elective back surgery so that should say something about like hey your life quality of life is pretty bad right now because you have a horrible back mm-hmm. so let's get surgery it's gonna suck the pain's gonna be really bad but you have people here that we're gonna try to help you and then you're gonna have a higher quality of life after and i think the people that can recognize that do a lot better than the people that don't yeah, there's this interesting aspect that you just reminded me of that's sort of like um, healthcare 
like our our inner our experience of our bodies is not in relation to the dire nature of something. Yeah. So like, um, you could break a bone or sprain an ankle, and then I've actually found that my ankle sprain is the worst thing I've done. And I've broken <laughs> I've broken my foot, my hand, my nose. I've had ten stitches. Mm-hmm. I've had uh, terrible cramping pain before, but the sprained ankle was the worst. So yeah. There's like sort of a paradox there where. The level of pain you experience that you that you receive from your peripheral nervous system mm-hmm. is never really in relationship to your dire risk. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you could uh, you could die from uh, cancer or maybe a heart attack. Cancer treatment's obviously painful. Uh, you could die from a heart attack and just have like a few moments of gasping, but you could be incredible pain from like a femur break right and your risk of death is very minimal as yeah. almost none yeah so i think that's something that that patient might have been alluding to at the oh totally putting it in perspective of health too totally um can i share a story from sure a patient no please this past week um without giving too many details because i don't want to get in trouble this patient was fairly young um and recently got in an accident that broke their neck and made them a quadriplegic. Um, and this is pretty recent. It, it hasn't been that long since this person has been like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was mentioning to them about how, like, how have they coped with this? How have they dealt with this? This is a huge life-changing thing. And um, they told me that, and this was really inspiring. It kind of brought a tear to my eye. Because <laughs> the way you go about it, it was... Um, they were like, yeah, at first I didn't want to be alive anymore. Like I was just so miserable and this was the end of my life and nothing's ever going to be the same. And like, you know, I, I've gotten over that. I realized there's things not worth worrying about or stressing about or feeling sorry for yourself about like, like I'll get treatment. There's hope I can walk again one day. But like right now, like I got people that care about me and that's pretty meaningful. Yeah. That was awesome to hear. And they totally backed that up because, like, imagine not being able to move your arms and having a scratch on your head or hair in your face. And we're so used to just moving our hands and scratching the itch or moving the hair out of our eyes. Yeah. This person can't do that. And there was an instance with this person where they had their hair in their eyes. Mm-hmm. And uh, the nurse walked into the room and was like, how long has it been like that? Why, like, why didn't you call to help? Like, we are willing to move your hair out of your eyes for your comfort. And they're just like, yeah, just not, <laughs> some things just aren't worth worrying about. <laughs> like, that's so powerful right there. Yeah. Just that minor, ah, it's cool. There's a brilliant sense in which you can put something in perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and what would seem to be the worst reality, like, with a change of perspective, can just become another obstacle in life yeah you know? yeah I'm, i was reminded of uh stephen hawking who recently passed away r.i.p because <laughs> apparently he was uh hilarious even right. through his robotic speaking <laughs> thing but he could actually do theoretical physics equations in his head oh so it's like what did you do when you got als and couldn't live life it's like oh, i just thought about the universe <laughs> <laughs> totally and i think this goes to one of our favorite philosophers like Sam Harris and what he's mm-hmm. trying to get at with mindfulness and living in the moment and mm-hmm. um, 
like, yeah, there's just things not worth worrying about. And there's ways we can experience what life is without physically necessarily being capable of doing so. Yeah. It doesn't mean it's easy at all. Certainly not. But like, I feel like ways to find meaning. Yeah. Cause we've been talking about addiction and another conversation I'm going to have with Armand, mm-hmm. uh, who's my roommate in college is, is going to be about addiction. But there's some sense in which like a, a certain amount of unhealthiness in where you can't live your normal life mm-hmm. might be able to bring you to a deeper sense of life because you're no longer bound up in yeah. like the superficial, I'm going to go drink, I'm going to go eat fast food or whatever. Right. Or, you know. You're not worried about the little things. Yeah. That, the little things that might pull you away from. Yeah. Living data. Bickering with your spouse and being <laughs> stuck in traffic. <laughs> it matters a lot less when you can't walk anymore. Right. Yeah. yeah. Totally. There's a movie kind of go. There's probably because he said ALS and based on the topic that he said mm-hmm. about Tim Gleason, the football player. He got, he, he's known for like blocking that punt in New Orleans, Orleans right after the hurricane and mm-hmm. just like really rallied the city. But then he got ALS and, um, there's a movie called Gleese documentary called Gleason. It's awesome. Was but that from CTE? No, he no, just it got it. Just, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, maybe it was from CTE. They don't, but, but he has ALS. They don't know. And ALS is a genetic condition. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but same, same thing. Like he even talks about how, and you see in the documentary how he just lives life and tries to make it as meaningful as possible and doesn't worry about the little things anymore. It's pretty cool. Pretty inspiring. Yeah. You definitely get that a lot. There's this, I, he gave a TED talk. I wish I would have watched it before we talked, but it's about palliative care. Mm-hmm. He was like shocked off of a train from an exposed wire when he and his friends were like messing around in the train yard. So he lost like a foot and a hand, I think. Um, but I think if you type in TED palliative care. I think I've seen it. this one. Does he have like one leg? And yeah, he sits on a chair during it. I think I've seen this one. Yeah. really philosophical analysis of palliative he's, care. He's a doctor. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen him. Um, but I wanted to, I wanted to ask you in relationship to pain mm-hmm. before we move on to more dire topics like death. Death. <laughs> it's going to happen to all of us. Yeah. The, <laughs> pain and death are inevitable, um, which makes them fascinating enough on their own. But there's this, so we talked about education a little bit earlier and this is where I was introduced to this topic from, um, I'm forgetting his name. He was an um, international relations teacher our freshman year. At Regis? Name, yeah, Regis. I think his name started with a K. He taught international... He just taught social political science classes. Kerman? No, it wasn't Kerman. <laughs> it was another teacher. Kabadi? Not Kabadi. That's theology. But anyway, he was talking about how the the whole room of the classroom was constructed for us just to pay attention. Yeah. So it was like these industrial lights above our head. Yeah. And, like, teachers are allowed to put up some posters in the wall, but the walls are just the same tan color. Beautiful. It's, like, a very sterile environment. The desks were the single linked-up desks. Um, so, by analogy, I've always been fascinated by how our environment can shape the way that we think and how we think. And I think of when I think of or feel or experience, when I think of hospitals, I think of hallways and double... <laughs> Double doors that are yeah. with like the the super hard glass that you couldn't break. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what, accurate. Yeah. What do you think of the environment of a hospital and its effect on patients? 
Um, or do you think that they've moved to change the sort of scientific and sterile environment to something different? So if you look at places like my hospital or a place like Children's Hospital, you'll see a huge difference in the way they're laid out. Children's is colorful. It's like funky desks and lots of shapes and fun things to look at. It's very like stimulating, like mentally. And it's calming too. Like it's not just a tan wall. It's like a soothing blue and a nice orange. And um, I think that's amazing. And I think when you look at like, I had a patient this past week who was over 100 years old. And they were pretty sharp. It's old. They saw World War One. Over a hundred. They were alive for World War One. Oh my! God. <laughs> wow. Were uh, they were they like cognitively there? So that's what I'm getting at. Is um, originally yes, mm-hmm. but as their stay in the hospital prolonged, they started to get a little confused. Like this person was asking where their mom was. Mm-hmm. Like okay, um, your mom's not here. Like how yeah. do you tell? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Someone needs to break the news. <laughs> but um, they were definitely a little confused. Mm-hmm. And I think that's not necessarily related to the medication she was getting. She wasn't getting anything not over the counter. Mm-hmm. Um, this was all based on um, the environment they were in, which is big overhead lights and like one color hallway and granted the hardwood floor in the hallway is nice and there's posters Mm -hmm. on the it's but it's still you're in a hospital you're in this room with well-lit room with the window wide open and a helicopter pad outside like yeah it's confusing and disorienting so i definitely think the environment is not necessarily the best it could be for patients Mm -hmm. um obviously you need it clean and sterile and having it uniform makes it easier to navigate around and uh-huh. consistent for the hospital staff. But, I mean, crap, why can't we have fun shapes and colors? And Yeah, posters, murals, paintings. Yeah, yeah like we have – each patient room has, like, a very nice nature picture in there, uh-huh. which is beautiful to work look at, but that's it. Like, uh-huh. there's no color in the room at all. Is there the ability to listen to music? Yeah. They have the TV, and they can listen to the music stations on the TV. On the TV. And they're welcome to bring in home items, too. Okay. Which helps, but if you're 100 years old coming from a (laughs) nursing facility, you don't have that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's very different. It's easy to get confused and delirious. Yeah. I think that there's this interesting sense in which the 21st century has contributed so many blessings to us. Life expectancy, mobility, um, like pretty much any middle class person can fly anywhere in the country and not go broke. Right. Fascinating advance, but something else that the scientific and technological revolutions have done is to create systems which are very sterile, automatic, by the book. Right. And they have to be because that's the best we understand. Right. Um, But do you feel like that? ever conflicts with the human aspect of nursing for you and your patients. Yeah, I'd say so. I'd say it kind of the environment can kind of dehumanize it because now instead of an individual patient there caring for their specific condition, it's just a it's a someone in pain. It just another one in room 32, you know. Yeah. Uh, that being said, I don't, I think 
you know, if you look at the past hundred years, it's been so focused on improving health outcomes Mm -hmm. and we've gotten so much, so far medically advanced. Mm -hmm. Um, and like numbers are pretty good right now in terms of like treating, treating people in the United States. Numbers are pretty good. And I think as we continue to get better in that, we can also turn a little more attention to other methods of improving health outcomes, such as how to prevent hospital-induced delirium. And Yeah, those other things. Yeah. Um, so we when, when outsiders look at nursing, when people talk about nursing, I often find that it's either criticism of healthcare, mm-hmm. it's costs, or something like that. But I think what very few people realize about nursing is the sort of existential reality they're faced with day to day being around sickness and death. Yeah. And we can get on to death um, if this isn't included in the question, but like what's the most emotionally challenging aspect of nursing that you've had to deal with? Mm-hmm. Um, if not death, then maybe pain or something along those lines. And how do you think that's changed your understanding of uh, either healthcare or just humanity? Yeah. Great question. Um, so I, I've seen, I, I think it definitely is death or if not death, the, you know, the quadriplegics you see that uh, have not had a high quality of life and don't have, have support systems and stuff like that. And that's tough to see because, you know, medically they're not going to die mm-hmm. due to a medical condition and, um, but they're not living a meaningful, fulfilling life and they're depressed and it's hard to manage all that. Um, but death is, I've seen death a few times. Um, it's probably, it's extremely powerful and motivating and it really puts things in perspective. Um, I'm kind of rambling here. What can you guide me into? Yeah, sure. I just think, I was just thinking of, um, it's, it's really easy to critique a field like healthcare. Okay. And something like that. But you, as being a nurse, have, uh, at least for the moment, given your life to a reality in which pain and death and human suffering are, like, that. that is what you do. That is what you interact with on a day-to-day. And, um, like, in the first sense, I think that a lot of people lack a kind of understanding of what it's like to deal with those things. Yeah. So it's like wondering... Um, as far as you want to share mm-hmm. what your experience with uh, those really, really challenging parts of human existence have been sure, and how they might have ch- like changed or shaped your understanding cool. of the world. Okay. Yeah, definitely. I think so. Two examples come to mind. The first was in nursing school. I was in the ER and a guy was brought in by an ambulance and they were doing CPR on him. Mm-hmm. Um, so I participated in that. And I think the thing that touched me most was seeing this person lying down um, as I'm doing chest compressions and looking at his shoes and seeing like this person like woke up today, put on their shoes and like was not expecting to die. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what their past medical history was. He was not expecting to die that day. And then like seeing his daughter come in and be like, not today, dad, like holding his hand. Like it was Mm -hmm. such a human connection right there. But like knowing like he's not there anymore. Yeah. Um, I think that was pretty powerful and thought provoking and it, it just made, it kind of made you appreciate like 
the beauty of like you know this is the old old man when his daughter is well in her middle age and like there's still that like dad don't die yet and that, that was pretty cool like made me appreciate my parents a little bit more um the other another one that comes to mind was as i was working on this job this person died they were on hospice care which i this just means their prognosis is poor they're gonna die within six months it's just keeping them comfortable to their die you're not was actively the, was this person fairly old or fairly young yeah yeah young for death yeah very okay. Not I don't like know how area, I don't know how much HIPAA restricts you, but we could say pre forty. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Cool. Um, mm-hmm. Too young to die, and um, um, I don't know. There, there's such a something so beautiful about not a, actually treating the condition, mm-hmm. right? Like I think in the you know Western medicine, we're so focused on treating the symptoms and treating the disease process and getting them out of there where a lot of times with these chronic illnesses like cancer or like congestive heart failure you know really you're getting them out of the hospital and then they're going to come back in a few months yeah at best and there's something about just being able at a certain point to say okay like i'm done fighting this i don't want to be miserable with all these side effects of medications and fighting for so long there's something about like hey i just want to live meaningfully and pain-free yeah and that's like deep because that's accepting death which is very uncomfortable that's embracing death and like thinking about it and feeling death and being like like it's gonna happen no matter what can how can i make the best of this yeah and that's super cool and i think the way they went about it with this certain patient was you know for being so young and it's not giving up like they didn't give up but they accepted reality for what it is and made the best of it and that's cool do you think that nurses go through a certain amount of psychological turmoil from doing their job uh do you think they're affected by being surrounded by death or do you think that um they're sort of engaged in what you were saying there's horrible negative realities but there's also beautiful things they mm-hmm. see in that um, maybe they have a more vivid view of life, death, and health, but it's not a mm-hmm. negative impact on them psychologically. Yeah, I think I think a big risk factor in nursing is to know how to be resilient and how to cope. And as hard as it is, sometimes you just can't get attached to the patients because that's mm-hmm. when it's going to hurt. Yeah. Um, you can still treat them their whole person humanely with, with dignity compassion. and compassion without yeah. being super attached to them. Yeah. Um, Do you know Paul Bloom's book against empathy? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I know you've read it. Yeah. Apparently there's this like deep form of compassion that Buddhists, Buddhist monks who do like love and kindness, compassion uh-huh. experience. That's not empathy. So it's not connected to the individual. Sure. But it's a psychological state that's about wishing someone well. Yeah. And I loved my experience with this meditation. I think it was, uh, may you be loved, may you be peaceful, may you be happy, may you be healthy. Yeah. Not particularly in that order. And that's what you repeat towards yourself, towards someone you love, towards someone that annoys you. Right. And then towards we, a group of people. We did that at Regis. Yeah. And you realize that in, in that moment that compassion scales, it's not the same. Right. So I think that there's a misnomer that not being attached 
identically with the patient means being uncompassionate. Yeah. I don't think that's true from what we know of compassion. True. Yeah, totally. It works along with that. Well said. Yeah, okay. I absolutely agree. Um, so maybe there's a couple other things we could touch on. Uh, one thing I really wanted to get to was what do you think that patients should know <laughs> who are not currently in the hospital, but were they not to hear this, they would be dickheads to the nurses and sure. the other staff. I, I think, um, <laughs> you know, your, your nurse truly cares about their patients. I don't think I've ever met a nurse that like hates, like everyone's there because they care about helping people. Mm -hmm. Um, but you have patients that tend to think that their six out of 10 pain is the most important thing in the world when the guy next to you is having trouble breathing. Yeah. And like, I think the biggest thing is like, understand that most of the time your nurses has four other patients. Yeah. Some of them could be dying. Some five other patients, some sometimes three other, but you know, yeah. your nurse has several other people there actively taking care out of being responsible for they're they're n never in my time brief time mm -hmm. have i seen a nurse not help a patient when they needed it you know and, and a lot of people get upset that their pain meds were an hour late mm -hmm. but the guy like i said the guy next was having respiratory issues and they needed to save their life like they're not just sitting there at talking and socializing with each other they're doing stuff yeah um and i think just having an understanding that there are other people in the hospital that might be more sick than you yeah certainly <laughs> that's sort of like the the first the first and most immediate thing is like and that's what that one patient who became a quadriplegic said yeah. as well yeah he's like I'm yeah. Not, he's like i get to live <laughs> yeah because this isn't as bad as i originally thought um, something I was thinking of was, do you think it, that if we had a more scientifically literate uh, populace or like, you know, just the average person was more scientifically literate, this would change <laughs> the way that people approach medicine or being a patient? Because my thing is, if tomorrow I come down with something or I have a disease and go to the hospital, I'm just like, what are the facts? What are the chances? What is the underlying physiology? What yeah. are the therapies? Um, how do I understand this phenomena given our best method of understanding the world, which is science? Yeah. Which, of course, doesn't cover all aspects of life, but in terms of our health, it's the best thing to turn to. Mm -hmm. But I feel like most people come into a hospital and they're like, you know, these people know what they're doing, I guess. I have a few questions, but I'm never really going to understand why I'm here. Mm -hmm. And I feel like there would be a... a correlation between lack of knowledge of science yeah. and the amount to which you would be an unruly or bad patient in a hospital. And I could be wrong there, but that would be a no, conjecture. You're, you're not uh, The worst, the worst is when they think they know. Mm. So things like WebMD are great when you kind of want to look up what might be going on, <laughs> but by no means should you ever self-diagnose or think just because you have similar symptoms to the condition on WebMD, you know what you have. Yeah. And that, that Donald I, Trump's run of great business. He'd be a great <laughs> president. Um, <laughs> uh, the death of expertise. God. So you get patients who come in and are like, I know more about my condition than you do. Yeah. You'll have, you'll, I mean, like, oh, so online I was reading about this, and I think this is what I have. I'm like, 
no, your back hurts because you have back pain and need surgery, not because you have a tumor in our dime. You know, <laughs> <laughs> we've done the X-ray. Right, we've done the tests. You're okay. And um, I don't know. The people that don't know, yeah, are generally pretty good because uh-huh. they they trust you. They're they'll ask questions, but they'll ask good questions, and you're willing to help them because of that. So there's sort of this like midline of they know enough uh-huh. to think that they can say something about it, but not enough to know that they're wrong. Right. And and sometimes too, like I had a doctor as a patient one time and I was nervous as hell <laughs> and they were totally fine. They were like, they never, they were asking me questions and I was giving them answers and I felt really smart. Uh-huh. But like when I found out they were a doctor, I'm like, Oh my God, this can be horrible because sometimes knowing too much too, they'll critique your methods. Mm-hmm. They'll make you feel incompetent whether it's intentional or not, they'll judge you. It's just like, it can be really very frustrating if they know too much. So Mm -hmm. the ones that don't know anything at all are often the best because you can answer their questions. They trust on you. They know they don't know. So they're more dependent on you. I mean, this might just be because your personality, because I know that you are a person who's willing to give the benefit of the doubt um, no. <laughs> you have a positive uh, association with people. You sort of like, you don't associate the type of free will that everyone knows to, and believes everything that they do. Um, but it's very interesting to me because I could imagine so easily coming out of like nursing or following nurses around for three weeks, me just being cynical about human nature. <laughs> like these people are idiots. They don't know anything about care. They're so annoying. But I've pushed you on this in like three or four ways and you haven't uh, went in that direction. So I'm wondering if like nursing it hasn't actually given you a negative view of the human condition. Uh, I mean. Where there's parts that do and parts that don't. There's definitely nights. And a lot of this is dependent on, you know, maybe I'm hangry and I didn't eat or sleep well before I went in. But there's nights where you just like, are so done and you're compassion fatigued, you don't, you don't feel like you can be compassionate to anyone. Mm-hmm. There's definitely nights or even weeks like that. But I think for the most part, you, you just have the mindset that like, even the healthy ones are in a lot of pain and that would suck. Yeah. So like, I'm being a bitch right now because I'm hungry and tired, but at least I can walk to the bathroom by myself mm. without 10 out of 10 pain. Yeah. And I think that helps you put it in perspective. Like, yeah, I'd probably be annoying too if I was in that much pain. Considering so, I'm in being grumpy and So like what cranky. percentage of experience with your patients is positive or negative or neutral? Okay. If you could just yeah. estimate. I'd say I'd say about five percent is negative. Wow. Do you think? Do you think that'd be more or less? I would think it'd be much more. We're dealing with the people who I see driving every day. God, (laughs) (laughs) and maybe that's part of it too. Like maybe, maybe people in we get like the wrong understanding of people in different domains. When I drive or walk around (laughs) on the street or whatever, and there's just so much behavior that makes me cynical. Like, you're driving a car, use your blinker, don't be a fucking idiot. <laughs> These are 3,000-pound vehicles, and if we go into each other... It's bad. Who knows what's going to happen? I'm pissed about this. And I have that, you know, running on my brain or... 
Yeah. Uh, certain political realities might make me cynical, but it seems like when you're face to face with someone in a health situation as a healthcare professional, maybe you're saying that that's not what you see of humanity. No, no, definitely not. I, I see that on the road too and yeah. walking around or people taking selfies and like, yeah. but do something. <laughs> <laughs> Thank um, you. Um, I think most patients and to be in the hospital requires a certain amount of vulnerability and because of that, I think it makes just the human connection so much deeper mm-hmm. because they have to give up a certain part of themselves to depend on you. And that's pretty cool. And even if they are annoying and dumb, mm-hmm. like you see the reasons why behind it. Yeah. And and then so you're not as affected by it. You're not as affected by it. Yeah. I, there's definitely, I would say most interactions are neutral. Mm-hmm. Probably like 80%. And I'd say 20% are positive. And that's positive in like a big way? Or just like slightly positive? Slightly positive. Okay. And then there's like another 5% that's positive in a big way? Yeah, in a big way where it's like they're affirming you or like you really connect with them. Mm -hmm. Um, You see that your cares are making them better. Mm -hmm. Like they drop some mad wisdom or perspective (laughs) on you. Yeah. It makes you think. like Stuff like that. That's cool. Like probably 5%. So that's – that's completely different than my intuitions were going, and I'm really happy I learned maybe that. I'm wrong. Maybe if you asked me as I was working a shift... It might be different. I might say, like, 80% negative. <laughs> <laughs> but when I have time to think about it, I, felt like yeah. I, I like it. I enjoy it. I think it's meaningful. I just have to say, I think your personality is oriented towards the virtues of a nurse in oh. some way, too. And that's just, like... I mean, I've been the worst kind of person around you before. <laughs> <laughs> The worst kind of person imaginable and your ability to reconcile my negative actions and see why they were caused and be understanding is unprecedented. Oh, Uh, stop it. No, these are facts. These are facts. This isn't an opinion. Um, And I won't go into the specifics so as to avoid public shame. (laughs) Um, So um, I guess – just to wrap it up, something me and Doyle do when mm-hmm. we do the book podcast is we end with a life lesson. Oh, cool. <laughs> um, so I was wondering, what is a life lesson that you've learned learned from either the methods, practices, or experience of being a nurse? Oh, boy. Can I give two? Yeah, you can give five. Okay. I think one. As long as this beer doesn't run out. Ah, oh, dude. Cider. <laughs> <laughs> California cider. Um, mm. I think the first is time management really like mm-hmm. when you're dealing with five patients that all want things at the same general time like you have to learn how to manage your time and organize things well i think that's gonna be huge for like when i have kids and stuff like that yeah um although you don't want to spend any time with your kid no, no. Kids <laughs> <laughs> i think the second is oh charlie's hair <laughs> the second and possibly deeper, it'd just be, like, perspective placing. Like, things are never – things are always worse. <laughs> but that's that's really meaningful in a way because when I'm pissed off, I have to wake up at 3 p.m. because I have stuff to do instead of waking up at 5 p.m. Or yeah. when I get killed in Fortnite or whatever. Like, <laughs> there's always a patient who had – 
back surgery and is in pain and then there's always a patient who's a quad and there's always a patient who's dying super young and there's always a patient who lost someone super young. yeah it, it always gets worse and it's never that bad for so me. yeah it's sort of like the rest of us every day could be like oh wow i woke up today without cancer this is a great day <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i'm i'm not going to bicker with my girlfriend over uh, the movie she chose right <laughs> or something right yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's beautiful. Um, I was going to – I forgot to ask this. What yeah, percentage of your patients end up in the spine unit for what reasons? And the reason I asked was because um, I saw a video on diet and back pain about mm-hmm. cholesterol buildup in the spine. Sure. And so, I mean, the question is always, is a disease being driven by lifestyle and behavior like diet, exercise, mm-hmm. those things, or is it being driven by – uh, accidents. So it's interesting. Hey, you get a lot of the the quads are all accidents. Mm. You know, not mostly car or no car ladder variety of things. Uh, car um, diving into the shallow water, um, getting assaulted, mm. which that one was heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, um, any sort of trauma usually. Mm-hmm. Is there a most common kind of trauma? I wouldn't say so. No. Okay. Well, there is probably statistically, but not that you've seen. Not that I've seen. Okay. And I haven't seen any notable trends to make a claim on that. Right. So violence, accidents. Yeah. Okay. Um, surgical wise, it's pretty interesting. There's a lot of it. I would definitely say is lifestyle. Like a lot of people with bad backs are not healthy. They're overweight. Mm-hmm. They didn't exercise. They didn't take care of themselves. Um, this is a little little different, but a lot of the people you see are healthy, and they played a lot of sports or something growing up, and now mm-hmm. they just the the trauma from the certain and all the pressure and stress they put on their back has caused them to have a herniated disc or something. Some of it's just getting older, you know. Yeah. Most people are seventy plus. I wouldn't say most people. A lot of people are seventy plus, like. Yeah, you're gonna have shit happen to your back. Oh yeah. Whether course. it's you're healthy and have a good life and So you would say more than fifty percent of your say, patients are over the age of fifty? Oh, I'd say probably ninety percent of the patients are, are over the, the age, age of fifty. Okay. Of back patients are over the age of fifty. Mm-hmm. Um you have some pretty healthy people that just have bad backs, honestly. They don't have they don't they, you have people that don't take any other medications. Mm. Like most people come in when they're older, they're on some statin for their cholesterol, something for their blood pressure, something for their depression. Yeah. They're on all sorts of meds. Um, you have a lot of people too that just got in a skiing accident and broke their back and now they have no home meds. So I, I don't know. It depends. I'd say there's a few obese people that definitely – like if they had some lifestyle changes, they wouldn't be in the situation they're they're in. Yeah, and I'd okay. say that's the biggest thing: is take care of yourself. Awesome. Because the ones that do take care of themselves get out quicker. They uh, recover faster. Their pain's better controlled. I've heard the definition of a body, like what what a evolutionary organism is, is a mm-hmm. self repairing unit. Oh yeah. And so the that what we do with diet and exercise is just to assist in the repair processes because we're working against entropy and decay, yeah. which is the natural state of the universe. Yeah. <laughs> Whether it's sun cancer. Dark. <laughs> no, it's beautiful. It's we're the only things in the universe that are uh, avoiding that kind of 
Yeah. All right. Radioactive That's... decay of molecules or whatever it is. True. <laughs> uh, I did. I'm going to kick myself if I don't ask you this question. Yep. So um, a woman whom I know in the occupational therapy field said she talked to <laughs> Allie. <laughs> Allie. Uh, Your girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> the worst kind of person. She said that um, she talked to this guy who was a nurse um, uh-huh. who actually called me a douchebag. It's interesting. But um, regardless, I want to ask this question. Yeah, no, spot on. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He said that there's a sort of sexism from patients and other people about the nurses they get. And when they see a male nurse, they treat them differently than there's a female nurse. So I thought, Um, you know, we have these social justice, sexism is rife, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you hear claims and you always want to know. I definitely think there's some truth to that. Oh, good. Hence the, are you my doctor? <laughs> you know, like what your doctor is an amazing female who's doing great things to care for you, dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, I had a patient last week who wouldn't let me take her to the bathroom because <laughs> she wanted a female. So definitely there's some truth to that. Um, I don't, I wouldn't. But that example's not based on sexism. No. I, I don't, I mean, I don't want a girl to help me pee necessarily, if I, if I had the option. This was, this, yeah, yeah, fair. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't say, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm oblivious, so I'll mm-hmm. note that. I wouldn't say I get treated better by patients because I'm a male okay. than the females do. I think it depends on how you interact with them and. There's a bunch of other factors to it as well. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, other than them thinking I'm a doctor, yeah. is that's probably the most sexist thing. That's common. And that's actually common with Old older generations. Totally, yeah. Yeah, and we actually, I don't know, there's interesting research I did on implicit bias that included a question about, like, a, a kid gets in a car accident with his dad, yeah. and um, he goes to the hospital, and uh, the doctor, he gets there, and the doctor says, I can't treat him, he's my son. <laughs> and uh, like seventy percent of people answer when you ask them, right. like, "Who's the doctor?" Yeah, they say it's uh, it's a stepdad. It's you know, right, right. and there's various aspects of it which might not make it the most accurate question. Like, who right. is who is the doctor? Or I can't treat him. He is my son. That's male, 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 male. Right. In the phrasing. But anyways, uh, thank you so much for doing this with me. Of course, yeah, uh, you're fun. always welcome back on if let, you have more to talk about let nursing. Let me know. I would love to. Do a round two sometime. But that this has all been much appreciated. Sorry. I learned way too much too. Sorry to the millions of people that have to listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> the tens of people. The, like two people <laughs> will ask to listen to it that may or may not. Yeah, cool. Well, I have another nurse and I know you know other nurses. So if anyone's listening, you have more questions about nursing. Uh, we can get a, a few other nurses on. We can talk about other types of care and so on. So leave a comment and let me know. Uh, let Tony know what questions you have, and we'll tackle it maybe in a few weeks or something like that. But thank you so much for listening. Tony, thank you for coming on. Of course, Maxer. <laughs>